Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. We hope, or your money back. I'm Lisa Linky. <laughs> That's Misty Stennett. Hi. This is a podcast where each week we read and review a popular self-help book. Sometimes not so popular, but like, listen, it's dealer's choice. So deal with it. Two for you, and one within for me. An hour, <laughs> that's right. Within an hour, we give you the hits, the tips, the yays, the boos, the what the heck was that? You'll get the main principles of the book so that you know whether or not it's worth your time and you should absolutely buy it and support the author, or if it is a 100% 2020 dumpster fire and you should avoid it at all costs. Or in this case, 2021. Who can I think everything that's a dumpster fire can now be referred to as a 2020. I agree strongly. (laughs) I really do. Just a timestamp. We're in the last few days of 2020 and you will be hearing this in 2021. So we hope that we have a new administration, but who can know? Mm-hmm. Who can know? Mm-hmm. Is 2021 2020 part due? Like, who Don't can say know? that. Why we'll would you out. even introduce that idea? That's terrifying. <laughs> I like to tempt fate. I'm uh, shaking in, in my bones. In any case, at the end of this episode, you will be able to astound your friends and family with insights from the self-help world, maybe even utilize some of these insights for yourself to make your life better, or you can burn it to the ground. We don't care. We're just here for you and however you choose to use. You're the captain and it's your ship. (laughs) By M. Daddy Herbershoff. By Captain Daddy Abershoff. Did I say who we were? The person over there uh, (laughs) who has a military fetish is Misty Stennett. And the person over here who hates all things self-help is Lisa Linky. And we are your guides on this journey through the immense genre of self-help. It is an explicit podcast. Mm -hmm. You're fucking welcome. Uh And uh, I think that's it. Uh, And then on supplemental episodes on Tuesdays, which we lovingly refer to as the Weekly Beef, is where we bring you articles or special guests or thought-provoking questions, other things to round out the self-help experience. And then on our Patreon, which you can find us at patreon.com slash go help yourself, we have deep dives, which are more intimate episodes doing the homework assignments that we give each other from each book, mm-hmm. uh, as well as supplemental material and lots of cool bonus content and, and gifts uh, and cool things that are available on multiple tiers and all of the money that you provide to us there, help support the funding and creation of this podcast. And we say thank you for that. Check that out. Also, if you want to support us, you can buy merch. All those links will be in show notes. And um, you can wear that swag with Prague. I was going to say pride, but I wanted it to rhyme. I like it. It's like a pride and a brag. At the same, it's a humble Prague. It's a you prag. made it better. Thank you. Maybe, listen, look out for your Prague merch in the merch store. You heard it here first. <laughs> Do you want a sassy shirt that says who can care or who can know or Huga? We got you. Risky Biscuit, we got you. Misty, what, what have you brought for us today? Okay, I am so excited to present this book. I am presenting The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices by Casper Turkile. Casper the Ghost? Casper, the friendly author, the friendliest author you know. <laughs> Am I allowed to wow. say that copyrighted? Who can know? Probably. Yeah. yeah, this is 
<laughs> spoiler alert up at the top, one of my favorite books that I've ever <gasps> read for the podcast. Oh my God. Yes. Misty. I know, which is huge because we've read a lot of books and I feel really strongly about a lot of stuff. So this book was also published in June of 2020. So it's new. Oh, it's like also wow. out of the press. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Misty, if you could sum up this book in one sentence, what would it be? Well, listen, I think that John Green, the author of The Fault in Our Stars, said it best in his quote on the author's website. He says, We can nourish our souls by transforming everyday practices, like eating together, working out, reading, taking a walk, into sacred rituals that can heal our crisis of social isolation and longing for connection. Oh, Jesus, John Green. (laughs) All right. I love him. I love love his TikTok. He's great. I love him. He has a TikTok? Are you kidding me? Or am I thinking of his brother, Hank? I think it's John. Hank But they're both great. Yeah. And also, when I read The Fault in Our Stars, I bawled. I couldn't put the book down, and I just bawled and bawled. It's so good. As far as the prices of the book, remember, it is pretty new. The hardcover is just under $25 on bookshop.org, and it is that kind of book. The paperback is $13.79, also on bookshop.org. The Kindle is only $1.99 as of this recording, which is an amazing deal. And I don't know if that's like a fluke or an accident. So like hop on that if you want it. And then the audiobook is $24.14 or one credit on Libro.fm. And that is very comparable to Audible. Credits are like, I think the same price, like 14 or 15 bucks a credit. Works the same way. And I did not look to see if it's on the Overdrive app. I bet you it is, though, depending where you live. The Overdrive app is a library app. It's amazing. So as far as first impressions, this book is very practical. But because we are talking about things like ritual and connection and the parallels we can draw from religions around the world, it sometimes feels like it leans into the woo-woo. But it's extremely action and research-based. And also the author reads the book and he's got a great voice. He's got this British accent and he's sort of like Oh, you loved it. Oh, I loved it. God, I loved loved it. it. So, oh, wait, well, no, no, he comes from a different. Oh, wait, well, oh, yeah. well, yeah. If that's how it was, I would have just tossed my iPhone in the fire. Stop your wait, well. <laughs> yeah. To any person from London, I apologize. Elise, our longtime loyal listener Elise. from London, I apologize. We're, I'm so sorry. The audiobook <laughs> is, <laughs> is five hours and 55 minutes, and the hardcover is 224 pages. And he speaks like a normal human being in the audiobook, so I did listen to it on one-time speed, which is really interesting. Okay, okay. And as far as what I thought when I first picked it up, I immediately loved it, which surprised me because I didn't know anything about this book. My friend Jesse recommended it to me and hadn't even read it yet. And uh, Jesse was a guest, he was our first guest host ever on the podcast. And he was like, oh, I've heard good things about this book. And I like this author's Instagram page. You should check it out. And I just wasn't expecting to instantly love it that much. So the author, the reason I loved it as soon as I picked it up is because the author starts off with this personal story of how isolated he felt as a young gay man attending an all-boys boarding school and how much he Mm. craved connection and community. And it felt like this book is really meeting the moment of where we are as a society 
And I'll tell you more about that in just a second. Okay. But a little bit about the author. Casper Turkile is helping to build a world of joyful belonging. He's the author of The Power of Ritual in 2020 and co-host of the award-winning podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper is a ministry innovation fellow at Harvard Divinity School and holds a Master's of Divinity and Public Policy from Harvard University. He's also the co-founder of Startup Sacred Design Lab and former director of possibility at the On Being Impact Lab. <laughs> he co- I'm already barfing. I'm a director of possibility at the On Being Lab. Impact Lab. <laughs> Fuck off. He co-authored the seminal paper, How We Gather, in 2015, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, Atlantic Magazine, and the Washington Post. He and his husband, Sean, live in Brooklyn, New York, and you can learn more about him at his website, which will be in show notes, caspertk.com. And also, super fun fact, he has bookshop.org and libro.fm listed on his website as places to buy his book. There's a little pop-up that comes up as soon as you get there, and it's like, buy the book. And those are some of the first places listed. And I was like, yeah, baby. He's great. I hate him. Okay, keep going. (laughs) Keep going. So the book is divided up like this. There's an introduction all about the paradigm shift. Then there are five chapters. One, connecting with self. Two, connecting with others. Three, connecting with nature. Four, connecting with transcendence. And five, already connected. And then he ends with acknowledgments. So here is how the stage is set with the preface, which is, I'm forgetting who wrote it right now, but it's not Casper Turkile. So here we go. We live in an era of fragmentation. Scholars have studied how our communities, families, churches, neighborhoods, work teams, and bowling leagues are transforming. Once stable and enduring, now as a result of... Sorry, did he say bowling leagues? Oh, yeah, baby. How is my bowling league transforming? (laughs) I'll tell you. Listen, as... As a woman who once worked as a jello shot girl in a bowling alley, I can tell you the bowling leagues are still very prevalent. Maybe not right now. How are they transforming? That's my question. Listen, we'll tell you. All right. All right. Once stable and enduring, now, as a result of economic and social forces, they are filled with people who have a more transient commitment to their jobs, locales, friendships, and marriages. For deep and historical reasons, our sense of identity is now more fragmented, for better and worse. We have more complex and richer spiritual identities than in the past, more complex and richer gender identities, and more complex and richer ethnic identities. We are living in a globalized world. There is much to praise in this era of fragmentation. The rise of rights and freedoms, the growing number of women in power, the democratization of art forms and information, and the glacial but accelerating move away from, from the homophobia, sexism, and racism that defined our recent history of colonial conquest. But there is much to be concerned about as well. People feel the absence of community. Studies find that the average citizen of the U.S. and likely the world is lonelier than ever before. People have fewer friends. They spend inordinate amounts of time commuting in the car or scrolling through online feeds. People feel less trust toward their fellow citizens and work harder than before. The technologies many of us greeted with such enthusiasm a decade ago are now proving not to be the utopian digital new world of connecting and sharing, but a different kind of world defined by anxiety and loneliness, endlessly comparing ourselves to others and perhaps surveillance. Our era of fragmentation has paved the way for an era of anxiety. And this fragmentation has pronounced costs for the mind and body. 
As a professor of psychology, I teach the science of happiness at the University of California, Berkeley, and beyond to hundreds of thousands of people in online courses, digital content, and my podcast, The Science of Happiness. Over the 20 years of this engagement, I have been asked one key question, how might I find deeper happiness? The science points to an answer in the abstract, find more community, deepen your connections with others, be with others in meaningful ways, find rituals to organize your life. It will boost your happiness, give you greater joy, and even add 10 years to your life expectancy. Stop it. Yep. And this is all, this is all <laughs> what science suggests. Deep connections and the sense of community reduce levels of stress-related cortisol. They activate reward and safety circuits in the brain. They activate a region of the nervous system called the vagus nerve, which slows down our cardiovascular system and opens us up to others. And they lead to the release of oxytocin, a neurochemical that promotes cooperation, trust, and generosity. But I have been You can hard- also hit the vagus nerve by just pretending you're pooping and just like like squeeze your butt like you're pooping a little bit. You know, I've heard that in a few places. I'm really going to try it. But I have been hard-pressed to point to deep, practical, principled ways to build connection, community, and a sense of ritual. And then, you know, this preface author goes on to say how this book does that. So he says, this connection sours the sweet things in life and makes any hardship nearly unbearable. Indeed, suicide rates are at a 30-year high. The data are clear. In a landmark meta-analysis of over 70 studies, Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad demonstrated that social isolation is more harmful to our health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Holt-Lundstad concludes in her 2018 American Psychologist paper that there are perhaps no other facets that can have such a large impact on both length and quality of life from the cradle to the grave as social connection. I'm going to start smoking. Yeah, it's easier, honestly. While our culture often lifts up the importance of self-care, we're desperately in need of community care. Without it, this impact of social isolation shows up in numerous ways. It is harder to find work, we fall out of healthy habits, and in heat waves or superstorms, we're more likely to be forgotten by neighbors and perish. So I'm almost done setting the stage. It just feels so important to understand what this disconnection can do for us and what we're all feeling. So why does this matter? Noticing these shifts in community behavior isn't just interesting. It's important. In the midst of a crisis of isolation where loneliness leads to deaths of despair, being truly connected isn't a luxury. It's a lifesaver. It's a life sherry. It's a life shuri. And basically, one study documented how the average number of people that Americans say that they can talk to about important things has gone down from 2.94 people in 1985 to just 2.08 in 2004. And that includes family members and spouses, as well as friends. We lost that 0.8 person, and I hate them. Well, it's like, yeah, or that point eight person. Yeah. So basically we went from three to two and it's a sign yeah. that our social fabric is, is fraying. So thank you for letting me set the stage about that. It just feels really important to acknowledge like this is what the data and science is saying we're feeling. So Casper Turkile, the author, says this book is about taking the ordinary things we do every day and layering ritual and meaning onto them. Even experience. I like this, but I have to say it immediately makes me feel like it's something else I have to do and I already hate it. 
You don't have to do it. But like in order to save myself and my community and the world, I need to like add a layer of something onto things that I already do. And it makes Mm -hmm. me mad. I'm just saying how I feel. Thank you for sharing that perspective (laughs) and that insight. And yeah, what, what I love about this book that you're about to hear is he's like, listen, these are things you're already doing. It's just that if you add this one layer of intention to it, suddenly it can become a ritual, right? So right. It's, it really feels like, and this is, you know, and if you're like, oh no, I'm connected, I'm good, or I'm fine with being a little bit lonely, it's fine. You don't have to do any of it, you know? So he says this book is about taking the ordinary things we do every day and layering ritual and meaning onto them. Even experiences as simple as eating or reading by thinking of them as spiritual practices. He says he's convinced we're in the middle of a paradigm shift, that what used to hold us in community no longer works, that the spiritual offerings of yesteryear no longer help us thrive, and we need to fundamentally rethink what it means for something to be sacred. He says paradigm shifts happen for two reasons. One, there's new evidence that refutes previously held assumptions. Why are you laughing? Did I ever tell you about paradigm shifts and my dad and my brother and I? No. My dad made my brother and I sit down and watch a fucking Betamax videotape about paradigm shifts that my dad got from, because he was a professor in the business school, and somebody made a video about paradigm shifts and what it meant, because it was becoming a new buzzword in like, I don't know, the late 80s or some shit. So he was like, this is really important, and this is this is like a word that's going to be used. <laughs> like, it's how we're going to reframe our world. And my brother and I sat down and we were like, okay, wait. and a paradigm is a way we think about something. Mm. And a paradigm shift is when we change from one way of thinking to another. And my brother and I were like, are you fucking making us watch this? My dad was like, this is really important. And we were just like, okay, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks so much. And now whenever anybody says paradigm shift, all I think about is my brother and I being like, we're... My dad is such a dork. You know well, what I mean? And here we are in 2020, you know, decades later, talking know, about paradigm shifts. so dumb that he was like, this is really important. You need to know this. Yeah. I love that they made a whole video about it. Sounds like introducing okay, paradigm shifts so, was a paradigm shift. It was. Yeah. Tell me about the paradigm shift. Great. So basically, when when new evidence arises that refutes what we previously held to be true— So think like the origin of species with Charles Darwin or like early astrologers putting the sun at the center of the universe instead of the earth at the center of the universe where we're like, oh, holy shit, this is how it actually works. This was all in the video, by the way. Thank you. Okay. Maybe he watched that video. Thank you. And then a paradigm shifts also happen for a second reason. And that is when older theories prove irrelevant to new questions people are asking. And he says, that's what's happening today. So he talks a lot about spiritual practices, and I immediately think of spiritual as like divine or connected to God or church or religion. And so it was really helpful for me to define spiritual so that we're all on the same page. So spiritual is defined as relating to or affecting the human spirit or soul as opposed to material or physical things. And that really helped me because I was like, oh, when I think about like what makes me feel really good on the inside or like what my human spirit needs, it really helped me to glom on because this is a very secular book, but it talks about religion the whole way, which is really Mm. interesting. So Mm -hmm. there are 
two key concepts to making your own tailored spiritual practices and rituals, and those are unbundling and remixing. So unbundling is the process of separating elements of value from a single collection of offerings. So think of how a newspaper used to provide us with a lot of things, classified ads, news articles, a puzzle, but now everything is unbundled into individual sites. Think cable news, Craigslist, Tinder, etc. The newspaper has been unbundled and end users mix together their own preferred set of services to suit their needs. The same is true for our spiritual lives. 50 years ago, most people in the United States relied on a single religious community to offer connection, conduct spiritual practices, ritualize life's moments, foster healing. And Tinder. Yeah, yeah. Foster heal. Well, you might meet and marry someone at church, right? Like old school Tinder. I just swipe through people in the in the pews. Yep. Swipe, swipe, swipe. <laughs> Thank you. It was also used to foster healing, connect to lineage, inspire morality, house transcendent experiences, mark holidays, support family, and tell and retell a common story to bind the congregation together. Really powerful stuff, all housed in one location. And today, all of these offerings have become unbundled. Communal celebrations have shifted to events like the Super Bowl or the 4th of July and Thanksgiving. And as for life transition rituals, we mostly make those up with our friends as we go along. He says our core needs of belonging and feeling part of something bigger than ourselves have existed for millennia. But where religious Mm -hmm. institutions have been mistaken is that they fall in love with a specific solution rather than forever evolving to meet the need. So remixing. Like covering up child abuse. That's one way. (laughs) So sad. (laughs) No. Yeah. and, And that's a reason that way less of us are religious these days because we're having a really hard time dealing with the hypocrisy of the church, of institutionalized right? religion, yeah. And that's what I mean about this is really meeting the moment. Like he is going, look, less and less of us are religious. The old theories are not answering the new questions. We are not on board with all they're saying. And they have these antiquated ways of trying to meet these needs that don't feel connected to Mm-hmm. The needs we mm-hmm. have, you know, nor- and I, I just love what he's done here. And I love that he's this secular gay man with his master's degree in divinity from Harvard, mm-hmm. you know, really wrestling with these things. So, so he says remixing happens when you take different elements of these traditions and remix them in a way that works for you. And we're also seeing this so much more in family life because there are so many more interfaith marriages than there were before, right? Mm. Yeah, because you might you might have people of all different religions marrying and starting a family. So the key to a ritual is intention, attention, and repetition. So though you may take the dog out for a walk multiple times a day, repetition, it isn't a ritual practice if you're on the phone because you're not really paying attention. It's just a habit. Or you might read every night before bedtime, but not bring any specific intention into it. So the author believes that almost anything can be a ritual if we incorporate these elements of intention, attention, and repetition. So It's interesting because my coven and I, we turn things into rituals. <laughs> no, I love it. Is this real? We do. Yes. Wichuals. Whenever we want to like mark something or do an occasion, <laughs> we'll turn it into a ritual. 
by <laughs> truly just setting an intention and like mm-hmm. communing with one another. Yes. And like, you know, making a statement or declaring something or witnessing yes. it for one another and yes. lighting a candle and just like making it unique. Yes. And it can be yeah. as simple as I'm going to light a candle to signify that I am in like sacred thinking time and I'm going to take out a fictional book I really love and read it with intention, with the intention of learning a lesson from the book. And that can be a sacred ritual. I'm going to set a ritual by lighting a candle and leaving the house as I take the dog on a walk. No. And setting the intention of thinking about, is my house going to burn down the entire time I'm gone? Done. That, that Done. I'm doing it. Yeah. I, but you're not paying attention to that candle. So I'm going to say it doesn't count as a ritual. Never do it. Don't ever do that. So. T- it was my intention on the dogs. Okay, listen, fine. I need to learn more. Keep going. Okay, to each their own. Fine, fine, fine. So I wish I could cover so many of the details in this book, but we're going to fly through some of the, the major Well, it concepts. sounds like you're going to have a hard recommend on this one. Hard, hard, hard recommend. And also, I think for me, so much of the value came in understanding this gap that we're all experiencing in meaning in our lives. Because I think a lot of us in the United States are going like, okay, well, we've got more comforts than anyone ever has in their lives. And we're technically more connected than we've ever been. Like I can call my grandmother in Florida on FaceTime and see her right away. And yet we're feeling isolated, lonelier. We don't have meaning in our lives. And I think there's a big void and a big gap. So just understanding the reality that that needs to be filled in the real craving that we have evolutionarily as human beings Mm -hmm. was really helpful. So if you want the deets on this, buy this book, but I'll, I'll give you some of his ideas right now. So chapter one, connecting with the self. So the two major concepts he talks about in this chapter are reading sacred texts and the Sabbath. And what I love is that, because I am not a religious person, and I tend to balk at religious things. Like, I, I don't want any part of it. It doesn't work for me. I don't feel connected. I don't like the hypocrisy. But he's he is purposefully remixing and reusing some of these outdated words or older concepts to cling to, which is I actually found really interesting. So he says, any text can be sacred. His mm-hmm. sacred text, and keep in mind, this was published in June of this year, so the manuscript was finished months before. His sacred text is Harry Potter. And there's a lot. Oh, he feels bad now. <laughs> well, it's it's so tough. And this is a whole other episode, which we absolutely, absolutely should address. It's so difficult when you're like, oh, God, the author or the creator of this work is problematic. Does that mean we have to erase all of the valuable contributions in their work? And it's something right. you and I have struggled with the whole time, you know? Yeah. With this stuff. So his sacred text is Harry Potter. And his podcast that he started, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, has like 22 million downloads, something amazing. But obviously, Casper himself was not clinging to the Bible as a sacred text, you know, growing up. And he says that you can make reading any text sacred if you ask yourself the following questions while reading. And remember, it's all about attention, repetition and intention. So you can ask yourself, what is literally happening in the narrative? Where are we in the story? What allegorical images, stories, songs, or metaphors show up for you? 
What experiences have you had in your own life that come to mind? And what action are you being called to make? Because it's easy to go like, oh, the Christian Bible, like I can see there's this story with this allegory and message, and it's reminding me of an experience I'm having in my own life, and I'm being called to try and be a better person, right? But you can do this with Harry Potter. You can do this with self-help book. You could do this, you know, maybe with a recipe book. You could make any I can do this with Vogue magazine. Yeah. Us Weekly, I am being called to not get as much plastic surgery. In touch. Or get it. I want to get plastic surgery. I want abs. (laughs) Oh, it's so sad. My dermatologist's office has a sign on the wall that says, if Botox could kill, half of Beverly Hills would be dead. (laughs) P.S. They already are. They're just corpses walking around. But they look great. They look so good. The next major ritual that he introduces in this chapter is this idea of the Sabbath. And in Judaism, from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, actually 25 hours, I think it's no electricity is to be used at all, no technology, all of your food is prepared, you know, for the day, no work is to be done. I think he said that people also dress up like it's a special occasion. You know, it is meant for to orthodox. be orthodox. Yeah. Yes, yes, for the Orthodox Jewish community. And and I don't know enough about it to to speak any further on that, but it is this idea that this is our day of rest and being, and it's a day to be celebrated and really revered. And he loves this idea of the Sabbath. And it doesn't have to be on that time frame or for 25 hours. You can make your own Sabbath. But there's a wealth of evidence that shows us that we enjoy life more fully and our health and attention spans improve when we take time to just be away from technology and the fast pace of life. And he models his own rest after the Sabbath, and he does do a technological furlough, I guess, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And he lights a candle and sings a little song and like hides his laptop and phone away and just really, he'll take a long bath that night and really just lets himself be. And he says, just to keep in mind, like you do not have to take a whole day. You could even just take a few hours and it doesn't have to be away from technology. It can be away from other people. If you're constantly giving of yourself to other people, ask your spouse or your roommate or whomever to leave the house for a couple of hours so that you get can have that alone. Fuck get out. out. But it's not a time for you to do other tasks. And the point isn't to rest so that you can get through a busy week. It's to revel in the beauty of being and to let your mind wander and do all of that really important default mode network processing that we know we need to do to feel our feelings. So he also says it was a revelation for him when he started seeing the Sabbath as the apex of the week instead of the day that's in service to other weekdays. So he really saw that the weekdays were in service to him resting fully on mm. this Saturday rather than instead I'm of like do a this. recovery from the other days. That's exactly. interesting. Exactly. And he says he starts to look forward to it every like by Wednesday. And he has yet to really have missed any truly lucrative opportunities or urgent messages, but you can really, you could take a Wednesday morning as your Sabbath and just take a long walk. 
you know, and that's your breakaway, but to, to view it as this commitment. So chapter two, connecting with others. This chapter is all about, well, a lot of it is about eating together as a sacred practice, which obviously we cannot do in a large group setting during COVID, but he offers a lot of tips and examples for how to do this and highlights an organization called The Dinner Party, which transforms loss into connection. Have you heard of this, Lisa? I feel like I have. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have. Sure. So so the dinner party, there was this woman who, right as she was graduating college, her mom died of brain cancer. And she moved out to Los Angeles, and this was such a huge thing for her, and she wanted so badly to make new community and connect with people in her new city. But every time she brought up, my mom died of brain cancer recently, total conversation killer, and she found that she she was just craving a much deeper connection. So she started to purposefully seek out other people who had experienced loss and who wanted to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so she created this thing called the dinner party. And it started out with like five or six people and then started to grow. And then it wasn't just about losing a parent. It was like, well, if I'm experiencing grief over my sexual assault, can I join you too? And suddenly this beautiful community was built where no topic was off limits. Everybody was free to share about their darkest moments and feel accepted. And I forget which ritual he describes, but even just to start the meal by having a small ritual, like looking into each other's eyes, saying your intention, how good it is to be together and toasting your glasses before you eat can be enough to remind everyone how great it is to be in each other's company, right? Or even saying like, we're opening this safe circle. And then at the end of the meal saying, and now we're closing the circle. You know, just these these ideas of like, we've created the sacred space and now we're done. And now the dinner party has tables in like 95 cities across the U.S. And it's yeah, so wonderful. Yeah. So he also spends a lot of time talking about how fitness communities bring us together. So think about how crazy zealous people can be about CrossFit or SoulCycle. And I'm like, I have I've never taken a soul cycle class and I've never understood why it would be worth it for me to pay like 35 or $40 for 45 minutes of cycling. But I think I got it more after this chapter. So he says, sweating and moving allows our bodies to express the stress and emotions we've been bottling inside and maybe are having a hard time expressing with words. And doing physical activities with others gives us both a shared experience and also reminds us that we're part of a larger whole. So it decenters us. Our emotional brain is less inhibited when we're exhausted, which helps us break down the vulnerability barriers we often put up that impede connecting with others. And this Wait, is a huge say that again. Our emotional brain is less inhibited when we're physically exhausted. And yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so this helps us break down any vulnerability barriers that we put up that impede connecting with others. Well, I found that my improv mentor told me because I was like, I keep having the best shows of my life after I've had the worst fights with my boyfriend. And she was like, aha, you need to work out before improv shows because you are physically and emotionally drained and then you are completely free on stage. So I was like, okay, So I would work out the day of my improv show and then would have a great show because I am, my brain was physically and emotionally, physically exhausted. So I didn't have the barriers. I didn't have the energy. It didn't have the mental energy to keep me from. The inhibition. Yeah. That's right. 
Fascinating. What a crazy revelation for you to be like, oh my God, every time we fight, like, would you pick a fight just so you could have a good time? <laughs> Liz Allen, she's brilliant. I love her so much. She was just a wonderful, wonderful person to help me really kind of get straight. That's my, an, that's an amazing thing to know about yourself. I love that. I'm going to try that before I have like a big presentation next time. Something I also loved about this chapter is that he acknowledges the community is both wonderful and terrible. And he Mm -hmm. talks about the courage it takes to deepen our connection. Because while we crave love and connection, we also fear it. Because sometimes we're worried these relationships can trap us. And Mm -hmm. living with other people often means being exposed to our own emotional insecurities. And it often seems easier to just live with books or pets. But he says that in our moments of deep loneliness, we understand that the cost of not creating community can be too great. I think the loss of community is something we've all been feeling. Yeah. At least in person. Yeah. The assumption is that community is always great. And sometimes it's full of terrible people. (laughs) Yeah. You know, sometimes there are toxic communities, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he acknowledges that. And I think he's all, he's in this whole book, the whole idea is to develop like a deep and authentic and loving, trusting community. Cause you don't want to be vulnerable with everybody. You know, think of the people you went to high school with. They were your community and a lot of them were dicks. No, thank you. So we only have a couple more chapters to go. Chapter three, connecting with nature. So he suggests a broad range of rituals in this chapter, including pilgrimage, creating new traditions, celebrating the seasons, and reimagining a liturgical calendar. And the two that, right? The two that stood out to me were pilgrimage and celebrating the seasons. So a pilgrimage is a special journey on foot to a sacred place. He says many people think of pilgrimages as grand or arduous, but they don't have to be. A pilgrimage isn't defined by distance, but by transformation. So if you walk to a favorite spot in the woods, that's pilgrimage. If you travel to a Beyonce concert, that's a pilgrimage. There's more. Yeah, yeah it is. Yes, yeah, it, it is. It, because you're going with the intention of feeling like empowered and letting go and like being swept away. And you or get just there. hearing some badass music. Thank you. And then you leave feeling transformed. Do you not? Where you're yeah. like, oh my gosh, you're yeah. so fierce. So there's more to this chapter on what truly makes a pilgrimage and how to integrate it into your life. So I really encourage you to read this part of the book if you haven't bought it already. <laughs> And the other thing I loved from this chapter was his suggestion of celebrating the changes in the season, because he says this can keep us connected to the natural world, which is something that's become so easy to ignore. Like we have air conditioning. So when it's really hot in the summer, we're disconnected from that. And we can get avocados any time of year, which we're grateful for, but that's not kind of the natural rhythm of of how nature ebbs and flows. Again, he says we probably already do this in small ways, like think like a fall festival or a May Day celebration, but he he encourages us to go a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. So chapter four, this is connecting with transcendence. And this is where, this is probably the most heady chapter, the most kind of woo-woo chapter, because so far everything else can be really logically explained. But some of the religious practices that we're trying to unbundle and reframe and remix into our own traditions are things that aren't very easily put into words. So 
This is where he explores and sometimes reframes traditional prayer practices of adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. And he used those old-timey words on purpose because he's really trying to reclaim them in a modern way. So for example, he never ever thought he'd be someone who identifies with praying. He had always thought of prayer as the most ridiculous element of religion. Like, why could you talk to some vending machine in the sky and then it would give you what you're asking for? Don't talk about (laughs) Sky Daddy like that. Sky Daddy. (laughs) And he says he was really suspicious of prayer. But now he thinks about prayer as being conscious of and telling the truth about how we really feel and think. So Mm. taking what is unconscious and bringing it into open awareness. In this sense, everybody prays. To pray is to listen to the self and what it's actually thinking and to what our hearts know to be true. And uh, when you define it like that, you can see how it is not limited to kneeling at our bedside, right? So for example, it could be meditating, going to a concert, going on a retreat, listening to music, Looking at a painting, self-reflection, a gratitude journal is a huge way of quote-unquote praying in this context. And you can speak out loud, you can write things down, you can sing, or you can simply share what you're grateful for around the dinner table. And or that can, can be prayer. you can spray paint it on your neighbor's barn. That's it. Look, self-expression comes in many, many forms. But as yeah. long, again, like when he goes into prayer— Sometimes he likes to like put a scarf around his shoulders and light a candle. And he like hates that the Lord's Prayer is the first thing that comes to mind. But instead of saying like, our Father who art in heaven, he will just be like, what's inspiring me today? Oh, I saw a documentary about wolves. Okay, our wolf (laughs) who art in heaven. You know, you can really make it something really customized to you. And then the last chapter is chapter five, already connected. So he says, The benefits of spiritual practice take time. And by now, you've probably already realized you need to commit with some rigor to have success. He recommends trying it out for a short period of time to build up your stamina and see what works for you. Because if you're like, okay, I'm just going to try and do a pilgrimage every day for seven days or once a week for a month, you know, it will help you to get through the tough times going like it's only for one month. So he says a practice must be repeated. After a while, the initial excitement and novelty will wear off, but he reminds us that what we practice, we become. And he says there's deep pleasure in continuing to do something over time and to see how it relates to our ever-changing lives and all the new discoveries we can make along the way. And he ends by saying this, and here is the paradoxical secret. Connection and isolation are bound to each other. I am confident that without my experience as a lonely, closeted teenager at a boys' boarding school, I wouldn't be as passionate about deep connection today. We simply cannot know connection without also experiencing disconnection. There is nothing wrong with you when you feel the vast emptiness. Nothing you need to change. Nothing to fix. But there is one thing to do. Remember. Remember that both are true. The vast emptiness and the eternal connection the sense of total aloneness, and the interdependent belovedness. It is the paradox in which we live. And all of the practices and stories and strategies that we've explored in this book are simply there to help you in moments of joy and sadness, overwhelm and barrenness to remember. So that's the power of ritual turning everyday activities into soulful 
practices. And if you nice want to job, Misty. thank you. And thank you to Casper Jer Kyle. If you want to read it for yourself, it's available wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about the author at caspertk.com, which will be in show notes. Oof. All right. Light casual. Yeah. Light casual. Did Yo. this book need to be written? I really, really think so because. This felt like a book that healed the gap between my own secular beliefs and Mm -hmm. better understanding what people love so much about religion, the traditions, Mm -hmm. the marking of life events, community, and the deeper meaning that it can bring. And it felt like it gave me access to all of those wonderful practices and permission without the oppressive dogma that I've struggled so much with when it comes to religion. Mm -hmm. And it feels really exciting. Yeah, like it feels like... I myself or my friends and family have immediate access to deeper meaning and connection and understanding what that could look like or what to do to foster that, no matter what our personal beliefs are. Mm-hmm. So I really like that it it f- feels like it's filling in this gap about having deeper meaning in life. Yeah, I get that. What did you try to put into practice from the book and how did it affect you? So I just finished reading this book last night. So specifically. Okay, so what did you put into practice? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I took a pilgrimage. I prayed. Uh, <laughs> I totally transformed myself. <laughs> For the last month, I've taken a pilgrimage every yes. day, twice yeah. a day. Well, I'm planning to put a lot of it into more meaningful practice, but I will say this. The most powerful, deeply healing and meaningful things that I did this year involved ritual or ceremony in some way and like helped me to formally say goodbye to old chapters or reflect or start healing or feel more connected to nature. Like, you know, the meditation, the virtual meditation retreat I went on in July, the breathwork groups that are led by my therapist. I Mm -hmm. did do a full moon ceremony. It was the first time Mm -hmm. I'd ever tried something like that. It was awesome. Even just like, oh, it's a new moon. I'm going to write my intentions down on a piece of paper and put my crystal out to recharge in the moonlight like the fucking California hippie I've become. (laughs) I can't believe it took you this long. It only took (laughs) 10 and a half years. No big deal. Bitch, I got a tray that I set my crystals out on on a full moon. Oh, I didn't know. You always surprise me with your woo-woo stuff. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Do you feel the author missed anything? You know, it's hard to say because I am not a super religious person and I can understand. And this is not, this is a book that is and is not about religion, right? And I'm sure that maybe somebody who's more educated on those things might be like, oh, well, he missed this or he missed that. But so yeah, I I don't really feel like he missed anything in my experience because he also weaves in storytelling in a way that makes the book really engaging. And mm. Lisa, he had caveats throughout the book that included yes. things like racial justice, making sure we aren't participating in spiritual tourism of other cultures, religions, and Thank only you. dipping in for the fun stuff without knowing the deeper history and significance. And then like just his lens as a gay secular man with a master's degree in divinity from Harvard felt like a well-rounded perspective. Yeah. Like if he's the last person that would that would find the meaning in the religious stuff, then I can too. Yeah. You know? I get that. Mm-hmm. Who would you buy this book for and who would you never buy it for? I would buy this book for anyone and everyone who feels isolated, lonely, or who wants their mm-hmm. life to feel more meaningful. 
I would especially Mm -hmm. buy this book for secular or atheist folks because, speaking for myself, I feel like I've missed out on a lot of the structures and community building opportunities and traditions that I would have Mm -hmm. gotten more regularly if I had attended church or had that belief system. I also think it would be great for someone who wants to connect more deeply to their current religious traditions, but is having a hard time doing that because they don't understand, you know, kind of the antiquated traditions or they find them stuffy, like they're not relatable because you could unbundle and remix these in a modern Mm -hmm. way to make them feel fresh and keep them alive. And at the same time, I think someone who's devoutly religious in a conventional way would have a hard time with this book. This is something he addresses in the book, how convention is the death of a lot of religious traditions because they just die out. They're no longer relevant, but the need's still there. So I could see how it would be really hard for someone who believes religion can only be done one way to apply the principles of this book. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. All right. What is the homework? What do you pick for listeners to to try to do from the book? And what do you pick for me to do to report back on our deep dive on our Patreon? Yeah, I want all of us to be thinking about something that we're already doing on a regular basis, like walking, eating, reading, even a TV show you love to watch, and Mm -hmm. thinking about how you can bring more attention, intention, or repetition to that, right? Or how you can ritualize it a little bit more. Like, do you always light a candle to signify the workday is done and Netflix and chill time is upon us? (laughs) You know, so just think about how to ritualize something you're already doing and see what that feels like. But make it easy. Make it really easy. This does not have to be like I'm totally transforming the way I do my bedtime routine to make it a sacred, you know, prayer-filled space. (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, we will report back on our deep dive on our Patreon. I can't wait. Yeah. Okay. Well, Misty, great job. I'm so glad you brought us this book. And I know you were looking forward to it. So I'm really happy that you um, brought it to us. I just love this book so much. It feels like one of those things where I'm like, oh, shit, deeper meaning is actually all around me if I just look for it. Or the passage of time can really be helped and organized by marking events with rituals and ceremony. So I love that. I love it. Yeah. All right, my friends, with that, life is abundance. Go Help Yourself was produced by Misty Stinnett and Lisa Linky. Our theme song was written by the inimitable Matt Sav. Inimitable. There's nothing we love more than hearing from you. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. We're also at gohelpyourselfpodcast on Instagram and at ghypodcast on Twitter. And you can go old school and check out our website at gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. It basically is a fancy PowerPoint slide. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review because it helps other people find our show. You know who else needs to find it? Your friends. Tell all of your friends. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.